too, as he is not an artist, although the recital of such a terrible incident may be moving, but the moment he arranges his words so as to convey in a telling manner not only the plain facts, but the horrible feelings he experienced at the sight, he has become an artist, and if he further orders his words to a rhythmic beat, a beat in sympathy with his subject, he has become still more artistic, and a primitive form of poetry will result, or in building a hut, so long as a man is interested solely in the utilitarian side of the matter, as are so many builders today, and just puts up walls as he needs protection from wild beasts, and a roof to keep out the rain, he is not yet an artist, but the moment he begins to consider his work with some feeling, and arranges the relative sizes of his walls and roof so that they answer to some sense he has for beautiful proportion, he has become an artist, and his head has some architectural pretensions, now if his head is of wood, and he paints it to protect it from the elements, nothing necessarily artistic has been done, but if he selects colors that give him pleasure in their arrangement, and if the forms his color masses assume are designed with some personal feeling, he has invented a primitive form of decoration, and likewise the savage who, wishing to illustrate his description of a strange animal he has seen, takes a piece of burnt wood and draws on the wall his idea of what it looked like, a sort of catalogue of its appearance and its details, he is not necessarily an artist, it is only when he draws under the influence of some feeling, of some pleasure he felt in the appearance of the animal, that he becomes an artist, of course in each case it is assumed that the men have the power to be moved by these things, and whether they are good or poor artists will depend on the quality of their feeling and the fitness of its expression. The purest form of this rhythmic expression of feeling is music, and as Walter Pater shows us in his essay on the school of Giorgione, music is the type of art, the others are more artistic as they approach its conditions. Poetry, the most musical form of literature, is its most artistic form, and in the greatest pictures form, color, and idea are united to thrill us with harmonies analogous to music. The painter expresses his feelings through the representation of the visible world of nature and through the representation of those combinations of form and color inspired in his imagination, that were all originally derived from visible nature, if he fails from lack of skill to make his representation convincing to a reasonable people, no matter how sublime has been his artistic intention, he will probably have landed in the ridiculous, and yet, so great is the power of direction exercised by the emotions on the artist that it is seldom his work fails to convey something, when genuine feeling has been the motive, On the other hand, the painter with no artistic impulse who makes a laboriously commonplace picture of some ordinary or pretentious subject, has equally failed as an artist, however much the skillfulness of his representations may gain him reputation with the unthinking, the study, therefore, of the representation of visible nature and of the powers of expression possessed by form and color as the object of the painter's training and a command over this power of representation and expression is absolutely necessary if he is to be capable of doing anything worthy of his art. This is all in art that one can attempt to teach. The emotional side is beyond the scope of teaching. You cannot teach people how to feel. All you can do is to surround them with the conditions calculated to stimulate any natural feeling they may possess. And this is done by familiarizing students with the best works of art and nature. It is surprising how few art students have any idea of what it is that constitutes art. They are impelled, it is to be assumed, by a natural desire to express themselves by painting, and, if their intuitive ability is strong enough, it perhaps matters little whether they know or not, but to the larger number who are not so violently impelled, 
it is highly essential that they have some better idea of art than that it consists in setting down your canvas before nature and copying it. Inadequate as this imperfect treatment of a profoundly interesting subject island it may serve to give some idea of the point of view from which the following pages are written, and if it also serves to disturb the copying theory in the minds of any students and encourages them to make further inquiry, it will have served a full purpose. I I drawing by drawing is here meant the expression of form upon a plain surface. Art probably owes more to form for its range of expression than to color. Many of the noblest things it is capable of conveying are expressed by form more directly than by anything else, and it is interesting to notice how some of the world's greatest artists have been very restricted in their use of color, preferring to depend on form for their chief appeal. It is reported that Apelles only used three colors, black, red, and yellow, and Rembrandt used little else, drawing, although the first, is also the last, thing the painter usually studies. There is more in it that can be taught and that repays constant application and effort. Color would seem to depend much more on a natural sense and to be less amenable to teaching. A well-trained eye for the appreciation of form is what every student should set himself to acquire with all the might of which he is capable. It is not enough in artistic drawing to portray accurately and in cold blood the appearance of objects. To express form one must first be moved by it. There is in the appearance of all objects, animate and inanimate what has been called an emotional significance, a hidden rhythm that is not caught by the accurate, painstaking, but cold artist, the form significance of which we speak is never found in a mechanical reproduction like a photograph, you are never moved to say when looking at one, what fine form, it is difficult to say in what this quality consists, the emphasis and selection that is unconsciously given in a drawing done directly under the guidance of strong feeling, are too subtle to be tabulated, they escape analysis, but it is the selection of the significant and suppression of the non-essential that often gives to a few lines drawn quickly, and having a somewhat remote relation to the complex appearance of the real object, more vitality and truth than are to be found in a highly wrought and painstaking drawing, during the process of which the essential and vital things have been lost sight of in the labor of the work, and the non-essential, which is usually more obvious, is allowed to creep in and obscure the original impression, of course. Had the finished drawing been done with the mind centered upon the particular form significance aimed at, and every touch and detail added in tune to this idea, the comparison might have been different, but it is rarely that good drawings are done this way. Fine things seem only to be seen in flashes, and the nature that can carry over the impression of one of these moments during the labor of a highly wrought drawing is very rare, and belongs to the few great ones of the craft alone. It is difficult to know why one should be moved by the expression of form but it appears to have some physical influence over us. In looking at a fine drawing, say of a strong man, we seem to identify ourselves with it and feel a thrill of its strength in our own bodies, prompting us to set our teeth, stiffen our frame, and exclaim, that's fine. Or, when looking at the drawing of a beautiful woman, we are softened by its charm and feel in ourselves something of its sweetness as we exclaim, how beautiful. The measure of the feeling in either case will be the extent to which the artist has identified himself with the subject when making the drawing, and has been impelled to select the expressive elements in the forms. Art thus enables us to experience life at second hand. The small man may enjoy somewhat of the wider experience of the bigger man, and be educated to appreciate in time a wider experience for himself. This is the true justification for public picture galleries, not so much for the moral influence they exert of which we had heard so much, 
but that people may be led through the vision of the artist to enlarge their experience of life. This enlarging of the experience is true education, and a very different thing from the memorizing of facts that so often pass ace as such. In a way this may be said to be a moral influence, as a larger mind is less likely to harbor small meannesses, but this is not the kind of moral influence usually looked for by the many, who rather demand a moral story told by the picture, a thing not always suitable to artistic expression. One is always profoundly impressed by the expression of a sense of bulk, vastness, or mass in form. There is a feeling of being lifted out of one's puny self to something bigger and more stable. It is this splendid feeling of bigness in Michelangelo's figures that is so satisfying. One cannot come away from the contemplation of that wonderful ceiling of his in the Vatican without the sense of having experienced something of a larger life than one had known before. Never has the dignity of man reached so high an expression in paint. A height that has been the despair of all who have since tried to follow that lonely master. In landscape also this expression of largeness is fine, one likes to feel the weight and mass of the ground, the vastness of the sky and sea, the bulk of a mountain. On the other hand one is charmed also by the expression of lightness. This may be noted in much of the work of Botticelli and the Italians of the 15th century. Botticelli's figures seldom have any weight, they drift about as if walking on air giving a delightful feeling of otherworldliness. The hands of the Madonna that hold the child might be holding flowers for any sense of support they express. It is, I think, on the sense of lightness that a great deal of the exquisite charm of Botticelli's drawing depends. The feathery lightness of clouds and of draperies blown by the wind is always pleasing, and Botticelli nearly always has a light wind passing through his draperies to give them the sense, as will be explained later, in connection with academic drawing. It is eminently necessary for the student to train his eye accurately to observe the forms of things by the most painstaking of drawings. In these school studies feeling need not be considered, but only a cold accuracy. In the same way a singer trains himself to sing scales, giving every note exactly the same weight and preserving a most mechanical time throughout, so that every note of his voice may be accurately under his control and be equal to the subtlest variations he may afterwards want to infuse into it at the dictates of feeling. For how can the draftsman, who does not know how to draw accurately the cold, commonplace view of an object, hope to give expression to the subtle differences presented by the same thing seen under the excitement of strong feeling? These academic drawings, too, should be as highly finished as hard application can make them, so that the habit of minute visual expression may be acquired. It will be needed later, when drawing of a finer kind is attempted and when in the heat of an emotional stimulus the artist has no time to consider the smaller subtleties of drawing, which by then should have become almost instinctive with him, leaving his mind free to dwell on the bigger qualities. Drawing, then, to be worthy of the name, must be more than what is called accurate. It must present the form of things in a more vivid manner than we ordinarily see them in nature. Every new draftsman in the history of art has discovered a new significance in the form of common things and given the world a new experience. He has represented these qualities under the stimulus of the feeling they inspired in him, hot and underlined, as it were, adding to the great book of sight the world possesses in its art, a book by no means completed yet, so that to say of a drawing, as is so often said, that it is not true because it does not present the commonplace appearance of an object accurately, may be foolish. Its accuracy depends on the completeness with which it conveys the particular emotional significance that is the object of the drawing. What this significance is will vary enormously with the individual artist. 
but it is only by this standard that the accuracy of the drawing can be judged. It is this difference between scientific accuracy and artistic accuracy that puzzles so many people. Science demands that phenomena be observed with the unemotional accuracy of a weighing machine, while artistic accuracy demands that things be observed by a sentient individual recording the sensations produced in him by the phenomena of life. And people with the scientific habit that is now so common among us, seeing a picture or drawing in which what are called facts have been expressed emotionally, are puzzled, if they are modest, or laugh at what they consider a glaring mistake in drawing if they are not, when all the time it may be their mistaken point of view that is at fault. But while there is no absolute artistic standard by which accuracy of drawing can be judged, as such standard must necessarily vary with the artistic intention of each individual artist, this fact must not be taken as an excuse for any obviously faulty drawing that incompetence may produce, as is often done by students who when corrected say that they saw it so. For there undoubtedly exists a rough physical standard of rightness in drawing, any violent deviations from which, even at the dictates of emotional expression, is productive of the grotesque. This physical standard of accuracy in his work it is the business of the student to acquire in his academic training, and every aid that science can give by such studies as perspective, anatomy, and, in the case of landscape, even geology and botany, should be used to increase the accuracy of his representations. For the strength of appeal in artistic work will depend much on the power the artist possesses of expressing himself through representations that arrest everyone by their truth and naturalness. And although, when truth and naturalness exist without any artistic expression, the result is of little account as art. On the other hand, when truly artistic expression is clothed in representations that offend our ideas of physical truth, it is only the few who can forgive the offense for the sake of the genuine feeling they perceive behind it. Illustration, Plate the Eye. Study in Natural Red Chalk by Alfred Stevens from the collection of Charles Ricketts and Charles Shannon How far the necessities of expression may be allowed to override the dictates of truth to physical structure in the appearance of objects will always be a much debated point. In the best drawing the departures from mechanical accuracy are so subtle that I have no doubt many will deny the existence of such a thing altogether. Good artists of strong natural inspiration and simple minds are often quite unconscious of doing anything when painting but are all the same as mechanically accurate as possible. Yet however much it may be advisable to let yourself go in artistic work, during your academic training let your aim be a searching accuracy. I.I.I. Vision It is necessary to say something about vision in the first place. If we are to have any grasp of the idea of form, an act of vision is not so simple a matter as the student who asked her master if she should paint nature as she saw nature would seem to have thought. And his answer, yes, madam. Provided you don't see nature as you paint nature, expressed the first difficulty the student of painting has to face, the difficulty of learning to see. Let us roughly examine what we know of vision. Science tells us that all objects are made visible to us by means of light, and that white light, by which we see things in what may be called their normal aspect, is composed of all the colors of the solar spectrum, as may be seen in a rainbow, a phenomenon caused, as everybody knows by the sun's rays being split up into their component parts. This light travels in straight lines and, striking objects before us, is reflected in all directions. Some of these rays passing through a point situated behind the lenses of the eye, strike the retina. The multiplication of these rays on the retina produces a picture of whatever is before the eye, such as can be seen on the ground glass at the back of a photographer's camera, or on the table of a camera obscura. 
both of which instruments are constructed roughly on the same principle as the human eye. These rays of light when reflected from an object, and again when passing through the atmosphere, undergo certain modifications, should the object be a red one, the yellow, green, and blue rays, all, in fact, except the red rays, are absorbed by the object, while the red is allowed to escape. These red rays striking the retina produce certain effects which convey to our consciousness the sensation of red, and we say, that is a red object, but there may be particles of moisture or dust in the air that will modify the red rays so that by the time they reach the eye they may be somewhat different. This modification is naturally most effective when a large amount of atmosphere has to be passed through, and in things very distant the color of the natural object is often entirely lost, to be replaced by atmospheric colors as we see in distant mountains when the air is not perfectly clear, but we must not stray into the fascinating province of color, what chiefly concerns us here is the fact that the pictures on our retinas are flat, of two dimensions, the same as the canvas on which we paint, if you examine these visual pictures without any prejudice, as one may with a camera obscura, you will see that they are composed of masses of color in infinite variety and complexity, of different shapes and gradations, and with many varieties of edges, giving to the eye the illusion of nature with actual depths and distances, although one knows all the time that it is a flat table on which one is looking, seeing then that our eyes have only flat pictures containing two-dimension information about the objective world, from whence is this knowledge of distance and the solidity of things, how do we see the third dimension, the depth and thickness, by means of flat pictures of two dimensions, The power to judge distance is due principally to our possessing two eyes situated in slightly different positions, from which we get two views of objects, and also to the power possessed by the eyes of focusing at different distances, others being out of focus for the time being. In a picture the eyes can only focus at one distance the distance the eye is from the plane of the picture when you are looking at it, and this is one of the chief causes of the perennial difficulty in painting backgrounds. In nature they are out of focus when one is looking at an object, but in a painting the background is necessarily on the same focal plane as the object. Numerous are the devices resorted to by painters to overcome this difficulty, but they do not concern us here. The fact that we have two flat pictures on our two retinas to help us, and that we can focus at different planes, would not suffice to account for our knowledge of the solidity and shape of the objective world. Were these senses not associated with another sense all important in ideas of form, the sense of touch, this sense is very highly developed in us, and the earlier period of our existence is largely given over to feeling for the objective world outside ourselves, who has not watched the little baby hands feeling for everything within reach, and without its reach, for the matter of that, for the infant has no knowledge yet of what is and what is not within its reach who has not offered some bright object to a young child and watched its clumsy attempts to feel for it, almost as clumsy at first as if it were blind, as it has not yet learned to focus distances, and when he has at last got hold of it, how eagerly he feels it all over, looking intently at it all the time, thus learning early to associate the feel of an object with its appearance, in this way by degrees he acquires those ideas of roughness and smoothness, hardness and softness, solidity, and see which later on he will be able to distinguish by vision alone, and without touching the object, our survival depends so much on the sense of touch, that it is of the first importance to us, we must know whether the ground is hard enough for us to walk on, or whether there is a hole in front of us, and that phase of color rays striking the retina, which is what vision amounts to, will not of themselves tell us, 
but associated with the knowledge accumulated in our early years. By connecting touch with sight, we do know when certain combinations of color rays strike the eye that there is a road for us to walk on, and that when certain other combinations occur there is a hole in front of us, or the edge of a precipice, and likewise with hardness and softness. The child who strikes his head against the bedpost is forcibly reminded by nature that such things are to be avoided, and feeling that it is hard and that hardness has a certain look, it avoids that kind of thing in the future, and when it strikes its head against the pillow, it learns the nature of softness, and associating this sensation with the appearance of the pillow, knows in future that when softness is observed it need not be avoided as hardness must be. Sight is therefore not a matter of the eye alone. A whole train of associations connected with the objective world is set going in the mind when rays of light strike the retina refracted from objects, and these associations vary enormously in quantity and value with different individuals, but the one we are here chiefly concerned with is this universal one of touch. Everybody sees the shape of an object, and sees whether it looks hard or soft, and see, sees, in other words, the feel of it. If you are asked to think of an object, Say a cone, it will not, I think, be the visual aspect that will occur to most people. They will think of a circular base from which a continuous side slopes up to a point situated above its center, as one would feel it. The fact that in almost every visual aspect the baseline is that of an ellipse, not a circle, comes as a surprise to people unaccustomed to drawing. But above these cruder instances, what a wealth of associations crowd in upon the mind, when a sight that moves one is observed put two men before a scene, one an ordinary person and the other a great poet, and ask them to describe what they see, assuming them both to be possessed of a reasonable power honestly to express themselves, what a difference would there be in the value of their descriptions, or take two painters both equally gifted in the power of expressing their visual perceptions, and put them before the scene to paint it, and assuming one to be a commonplace man and the other a great artist, what a difference will there be in their work. The commonplace painter will paint a commonplace picture, while the four men color will be the means of stirring deep associations and feelings in the mind of the other, and will move him to paint the scene so that the same splendor of associations may be conveyed to the beholder. Illustration, play the eye. Study for the figure of Apollo in the picture, Apollo and Daphne, in natural red chalk rubbed with finger, the highlights are picked out with rubber, but to return to our infant mind, while the development of the perception of things has been going on. The purely visual side of the question, the observation of the picture on the retina for what it is as for men color, has been neglected neglected to such an extent that when the child comes to attempt drawing, sight is not the sense he consults. The mental idea of the objective world that has grown up in his mind is now associated more directly with touch than with sight, with the felt shape rather than the visual appearance, so that if he is asked to draw a head, he thinks of it first as an object having a continuous boundary in space this his mind instinctively conceives as a line, then, here he expresses by a row of little lines coming out from the boundary, all round the top, he thinks of eyes as two points or circles, or as points in circles, and the nose either as a triangle or an L-shaped line, if you feel the nose you will see the reason of this, down the front you had the L line, and if you feel round it you will find the two sides meeting at the top and a base joining them, suggesting the triangle. The mouth similarly is an opening with a row of teeth, which are generally shown although so seldom seen, but always apparent if the mouth is felt. See diagram A. This is, I think, 
a fair type of the first drawing the ordinary child makes and judging by some ancient scribbling of the same order I remember noticing scratched on a wall at Pompeii, and by savage drawing generally, it appears to be a fairly universal type. It is a very remarkable thing which, as far as I know, has not yet been planned out, that in these first attempts at drawing the vision should not be consulted. A blind man would not draw differently, could he but see to draw, were vision the first sense consulted, and were the simplest visual appearance sought after, one might expect something like diagram be the shadows under eyes, nose, mouth, and chin, with the darker mass of the hair being the simplest thing the visual appearance can be reduced to, but despite this being quite as easy to do, it does not appeal to the ordinary child as the other type does because it does not satisfy the sense of touch that forms so large a part of the idea of an object in the mind. All architectural elevations and geometrical projections generally appeal to this mental idea of form. They consist of views of a building or object that could never possibly be seen by anybody, assuming as they do that the eye of the spectator is exactly in front of every part of the building at the same time. A physical impossibility and yet so removed from the actual visual appearance is our mental idea of objects that such drawings do convey a very accurate idea of a building or object, and of course they have great advantages working drawings in that they can be scaled. Illustration, diagram I a type of first drawing made by children, showing how vision has not been consulted B type of what might have been expected if crudest expression of visual appearance had been attempted if so early the sense of vision is neglected and relegated to be the handmaiden of other senses. It is no wonder that in the average adult it is in such a shocking state of neglect. I feel convinced that with the great majority of people vision is seldom if ever consulted for itself, but only to minister to some other sense. They look at the sky to see if it is going to be fine, at the fields to see if they are dry enough to walk on, or whether there will be a good crop of hay, at the stream not to observe the beauty of the reflections from the blue sky or green fields dancing upon its surface or the rich coloring of its shadowed depths but to calculate how deep it is or how much power it would supply to a work a mill, how many fish it contains, or some other association alien to its visual aspect. If one looks up at a fine mass of cumulus clouds above a London street, the ordinary passerby who follows one's gaze expects to see a balloon or a flying machine at least, and when he sees it is only clouds he is apt to wonder what one is gazing at. The beautiful form and color of the cloud seem to be unobserved, Clouds mean nothing to him but an accumulation of water dust that may bring rain. This accounts in some way for the number of good paintings that are incomprehensible to the majority of people. It is only those pictures that pursue the visual aspect of objects to a sufficient completion to contain the suggestion of these other associations, that they understand at all. Other pictures, they say, are not finished enough. And it is so seldom that a picture can have this petty realization and at the same time be an expression of those larger emotional qualities that constitute good painting. The early paintings of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood appear to be a striking exception to this, but in their work the excessive realization of all details was part of the expression and gave emphasis to the poetic idea at the basis of their pictures, and was therefore part of the artistic intention. In these paintings the fiery intensity with which every little detail was painted made their picture a ready medium for the expression of poetic thought, a sort of painted poetry, every detail being selected on account of some symbolic meaning it had, bearing on the poetic idea that was the object of the picture. But to those painters who do not attempt painted poetry, but seek in painting a poetry of its own, a visual poetry, the successive finish as it is called is irksome. 
as it mars the expression of those qualities in vision they wish to express. Finish in art has no connection with the amount of detail in a picture, but has reference only to the completeness with which the emotional idea the painter set out to express has been realized. The visual blindness of the majority of people is greatly to be deplored, as nature is ever offering them on their retina, even in the meanest slum, a music of color and form that is a constant source of pleasure to those who can see it. But so many are content to use this wonderful faculty of vision for utilitarian purposes only. It is the privilege of the artist to show how wonderful and beautiful is all this music of color and form, so that people, having been moved by it in his work, may be encouraged to see the same beauty in the things around them. This is the best argument in favor of making art a subject of general education, that it should teach people to see. Everybody does not need to draw and paint, but if everybody could get the faculty of appreciating the form and color on their retinas as form and color, what a wealth would always be at their disposal for enjoyment. The Japanese habit of looking at a landscape upside down between their legs is a way of seeing without the deadening influence of touch associations. Thus looking, one is surprised into seeing for once the color and form of things with the association of touch for the moment forgotten, and is puzzled at the beauty. The odd thing is that although thus we see things upside down, the pictures on our retinas are foreign.